and welcome to Max Politics. This is Ben Max from Gotham Gazette. Thanks so much for tuning in. We have another good conversation on New York politics and government here on this episode. If you've missed any of our recent shows, we've had some really great guests and conversations, including recently Murad Awada of the New York Immigration Coalition, leaders of the 21 in 21 effort to elect more women to the New York City Council, Jessica Haller, and one of the candidates who won a recent primary, Crystal Hudson, as well as Queensborough President Donovan Richards, public advocate Jamani Williams, and others. And we've talked about some really important issues and themes like the state eviction moratorium and the troubled emergency rental assistance program, which we hope is getting fixed and addressed to get billions of dollars out the door to renters and landlords who need it. You can find every episode of Max Politics wherever you get your podcasts or at the Gotham Gazette website. Also under that banner, we've been producing a pop-up podcast this year called Latino Vote 21, hosted by Eli Valentine, with some great guests to discuss Latino voters, Latino candidates, and the 2021 New York City elections. So you can find those episodes and a lot more under Max Politics, wherever you get podcasts or at Gotham Gazette. All right. For this episode, I am joined by a guest whose candidacy for city council actually touches on a couple of those themes I just mentioned. Uh, and I had to fight with Eli Valentine over who, who got to interview today's guest, but that's Tiffany Caban, a Democrat running for city council in Queens in District 22, who recently won her primary and is one of the most prominent members of the Democratic Socialists of America New York City branch, one of the leaders of the city's left movement, especially on criminal justice reform after she kind of skyrocketed into the public consciousness by almost pulling off a major upset in the 2019 election for Queens district attorney and now likely headed to the city council. Tiffany, thanks very much for joining me. Thank you for having me. I'm, I'm excited to chat. Yeah, thank you for making the time. Appreciate it. Um, so the, many of the listeners to this discussion will probably be fairly familiar with you based on what I just said, but for those who are not familiar with you or maybe only a little, a little background on you, who you are, where you come from, uh, you know, just a little primer on, on who you are. Absolutely. Uh, I am a actually newly 34 year old. Happy birthday. Um, thank you. Uh, queer Latina who was born right here in Queens. Um, you know, my, my, parents actually grew up in the public housing that is literally just across the street from the district that I am hoping to represent in the the Woodside houses. Um, And I am somebody who has been really open about my experiences with exposure to to violence, to um, mental health and substance use issues, to economic insecurity. uh, And really that like drove me into what was my my first work in in my career as a a public defender. I spent seven years as a public defender uh, representing folks on cases, everything from turnstile jumps to homicides. Uh, And then, you know, I had a couple of my homegirls hit me up and convinced me of this seemingly crazy thing to run for for Queens District Attorney. We came very, very close. Um, But I think that we did a lot of really good work and and have seen, um, you know, the way that we've been able to build on on those things at every level of of government and went on to just continue to do political organizing. I've done that on the national side with the Working Families uh, Party, done it really locally here in the the city and state level. Um, And, you know, now here we are having uh, won the Democratic primary here in District 22. It's Astoria, parts of Woodside, uh, parts of Jackson Heights, um, 
uh, parts of East Helmhurst. And then a lot of people don't know this. It includes Rikers Island, which just has obviously a, a really um, it has a lot of significance to me and the work that, that I do. Yeah, we'll dig we'll dig into that in a few minutes. Um, so when you entered the city council field, <laughs> several people dropped out uh, pretty quickly and endorsed you. You partially cleared the field uh, coming in with that very strong backing and and profile that you built in the district attorney run. But you still had some competition, but you won you won by a fairly wide margin in the primary. Why do you think you were so successful? What is it about uh, your message that you think spoke to primary voters? Yeah, I, I mean, the relationship building never stopped, right? I remained very present and um, involved in my community, continuing to do the work that I did, right? I am very much so a known entity in my community. Um, I am really proud of the fact that actually, in a lot of ways, we performed um, better than we did in the DA race. And it showed a progression of how many more folks we were connecting with and having conversations with. We ended up winning over 93% of the election districts in um, in council district 22. Uh, and so it's, a, it's really nice to be able to go in and say, there's a, a clear mandate um, from my community for what the things are that they want me to fight for in, in city hall. And then to see the places where we made gains, I think it was a really valid criticism, right? For example, in my DA race that, um, we didn't perform better in public housing and parts of Southeast Queens. Um, and there was clearly work to be done. And so like really, really proud of the organizing that we continue to do and, and dug really intentionally in, uh, and found that we did even better, right? Like we had a strong showing, um, but came back and, you know, built deeper ties with communities uh, and, you know, just really excited about the organizing we did. And it was, we engaged in relational organizing. We did it all. We gave our volunteers and empowered them to really own the campaign and talk about the issues that mattered. We took the feedback and tailored our messaging to what folks, uh, you know, really, really wanted. And then it just was, I mean, hard work as, as health allowed. Like I, I ever on any given week was knocking myself 800 to a thousand doors. Mm -hmm. And my philosophy and all of the work that I do is that like, I'm going to come in at it from a place of like genuinely, you know, wanting to, to work hard with um, and for folks and that nobody is going to outwork me, period. Mm -hmm. And when you had, let's say, on an average door uh, a minute to make to make your pitch, what were the things that you put front and center for voters that you wanted them to hear you say, if you elect me, here is what I'm going to pursue? Budget, I mean, public safety and the environment, they came up at every door, essentially. And, you know, the conversation around public safety was very, very firmly rooted in budget justice and having um, meaningful conversations about what actually produces safety in our communities, what you would like to see um, and how disproportionate the, the resources are for the workers who can give you those things um, and the police, you know, um, and the, and how easily you could connect so many issues to 
the, the imbalance in budget, right? When you talk about, well, you want more nurses in your schools where you have police officers that are taking kids temperatures because we don't have enough of those. Like well, this is a workforce imbalance. We can't get the, the trash picked up. Um, this is a, a budget issue. It's a workforce imbalance. We need more sanitation workers or whatever it might be. And then understanding that, you know, access to healthcare, housing, job opportunities, it makes us feel safer. And so why aren't we deeply, more deeply investing in those things as a path towards safer, healthier communities? And then the other big thing um, was just the environment. Uh, and there's this idea that I think is false that we've been told a lot around conversations about, around environmental justice. They're like big, they're, you know, our neighbors don't care about them. They can't talk about them. It don't make sense to them. It's such nonsense. At every single door, we talked about the high asthma rates here, people connecting them to the power plants in our district. If they didn't know that another power plant was about to come and they and we were the ones to tell them, they immediately wanted to know what we could do to stop it and what the alternatives were. And so we were able to then say, well, hey, this is what we can do here. We can build out um, you, you know, green infrastructure. Uh, throughout the city. A renewable Rikers could be a reality. We can have more bus lanes. We can improve our public transportation. All of those things are going to make it so that your kids aren't so likely to have asthma, that your, your loved ones or your elders aren't at risk of respiratory disease. Interesting. In the primary, uh, in the initial results, first place votes, right? There's a, also the ranked choice runoff, of course. But in the initial results, um, you got almost 50% of those. Your next closest opponent got uh, almost 26%. Those voters, uh, and, and then voters that also chose other candidates, although most of the other candidates got, got pretty, pretty low numbers. What do you say to the voters who didn't vote for you in the primary? How do you, um, you, know, how do you reach out to them now that it's the general election and now that you're very likely to be the council member for the district? How do you how do you reach them? Most likely, a lot of those uh, voters felt like you were to their left. Uh, how, how do you reach out to them? What do you what do you say to them? Yeah, um, this district is really unique. It is just feels like the epicenter of you know leftist um, politics. I mean, we now have socialist um, soon to be in office at every level of government from, you know, Congress down to our district leaders. Uh, so if you look at the almost 50 percent of first choice votes that I got and then, you know, the almost 30 um, percent that uh, a very like wonderful community member, um, Eddie Hansopoulos, got, you're looking at 80 percent of first choice votes that were wildly progressive, because while, yes, I was the most leftist, can the only you know abolitionist socialist candidate in the race, her platform was incredibly progressive and there was alignment on a lot of different issues. Right. And so putting that together, you know, the challenge to bring people in who, you know, quote unquote, were in our people, um, the gap isn't as large there. And then, you know, it's something that I have a lot of experience with bringing in folks who weren't with us and, you know, building the kind of trust that's necessary to know that, like, even when we don't agree, we will be able to work together. After my DA race, the first people I met with were the people who didn't endorse me and coming away from those conversations and being like, well, we don't agree on everything, but I feel like I can trust her. I feel like we can have these conversations. She does her homework. And there are enough things that we agree on that we can prioritize moving together on. And that's the same approach that you know I take here. I mean, even folks who don't 
um, support defunding, right, or divesting from the police budget and removing them from responding to certain things, the other places where it aligns is for me, right, that entire idea is rooted in building safe and healthy communities. And it is as much about removing them from certain responses as building up more appropriate responses. And that that building up, that creation um, are things that that most folks agree with, right? Um, if you don't really support defunding the police, but you do believe that mental health issues shouldn't be criminalized, that um, you know we need to expand uh, health and hospitals, that we have to have more clinics that can provide comprehensive care, all of those things, that's part of my public safety plan, right? Um, and in my mind, we are successful if the 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 order or the trajectory of progress is that we build up these systems of support that then prove, right, that we, that the police are redundant or like aren't the appropriate responder or worker to address the problem. And then you can start peeling back. Um, You know, I think sometimes a mistake that's been made in some of our talking broadly about our organizing is this idea that like, you get rid of it now and then we build up what we have to build up. But, you know, I think actually the, the more appropriate strategy is to make people aware of the alternative, show where it's working, scale it, mm-hmm. and then and then be peeling back. Mm-hmm. Interesting. You call yourself an abolitionist. So abolish the police is the is the ultimate goal. Yes. Um, and I'm going to like I'll, and I'll say this. Right. That is. That is a long arc of a, uh, a goal. It is not tomorrow. And what I like to remind people is that abolition is both a noun and a verb, right? So abolition, the noun, is like that world without the prison industrial complex, right? Without police and prosecutors and prisons. But abolition, the verb, um, is about taking steps towards creating a health infrastructure. It's about taking steps towards creating systems of accountability, not systems of punishment, which make all the sense in the world when you think about which one um, is more effective at changing behavior, right? We're not going to live in a world where nobody ever hurts anybody. That's just unrealistic. But we can live in a world where when somebody gets hurt, we have the infrastructure and the processes available to us that change behavior and exponentially reduce the chances that they will harm again. Whereas um, just removing somebody and incapacitating them, the data shows doesn't fundamentally change behavior. You will sometimes get responses um, from people about, well, I got this alternative to incarceration or I got access to this program in this space And that helped me and change behavior. But then the thing that I throw back to you is why wasn't this kind of support or program available pre-criminal legal system involvement, which, by the way, when you're trying to navigate a program like that or a support like that, it's much harder uh, when you're also navigating the trauma that is inherent in these systems. And then the last thing that I'll add to that. Um, it's probably not the last thing, but uh, one thing I will add to that is, is widening the lens, our view, because we are so focused on the individual and what the consequences are for the individual. Um, 
But if we are looking at overall public health and public safety results, we have to think about the ripple effects. So by incarcerating somebody, when when taking another action could change their behavior and create better conditions, um, if somebody is incarcerated, an intimate family member of that person, there's a 75% chance that they will not be able to meet their basic economic needs. Their lives are destabilized to the point where now you've created the condition where that person, their immediate family members are all at higher risk for criminal legal system involvement, right? So thinking about those things too. So when I say I'm an abolitionist, abolish the police, it's not going to happen tomorrow. It is not, you know, it is also not pie in the sky. It is not um, because I support anarchy, right? It's because one, um, it's about bringing a lens of practically what is going to bring us the best public health and public safety outcomes. Um, and it comes from a place of, you know, also really, really deeply caring about human beings and sort of breaking the binary of like, there are good people and bad people in this world. And we just got to lock up the, the bad people. It's so much more complex than that from my first campaign to the next, I've been really open about how, you know, um, my grandfather, right. And the, the 22nd pitch I'll give you or story I'll give you is that he was someone who was an alcoholic, um, you know, verbally and physically uh, abusive to his wife and family um, to the point where my grandmother left him. But years later when he was brought back into my life so he can get to know his grandchildren, um, I was struggling as a small child and he came to, to live with us and he was a lifeline for me. He was the kindest, most patient. Um, you know, I, I just was, awe, I hung on his every word. It was in awe of him. And he really helped me through some really difficult times because those cycles continue, right? Like, you know, trauma begets trauma begets trauma, unless there's something to interrupt those cycles of, of trauma. And so here you have really like harmful um, husband and father and a really incredible uh, grandfather who then you add in the third layer of things was a dirt poor kid from Puerto Rico who did what a lot of people from Puerto Rico did to get off the island, joined the military, fought in the Korean War, you know, was a Purple Heart recipient, um, came home with PTSD and self-medicated and like where were our systems in place to support him so that he could better support his family. He could have easily ended up in and out of jail all the time because those that's the infrastructure, that's the system we have. Some people who listen to you speak about reform, abolition process uh, may be with you up to the point of violent crime. What do you say to people who say there are people we, the, we're not going to do away in any of our lifetimes, probably with the proliferation of guns in our society? There's going to be people with access to guns. Uh, they are going to use them. What do we do with that? fairly small percentage of the population, obviously, that's engaging in gun violence. What's the sort of short-term vision for that? I talked to Jamani Williams, who you seem aligned with on a, on a lot. Um, you know, he repeatedly stresses, and maybe this is a little bit of a sort of political signal, but he says, I'm, I'm not talking about no role for law, for law enforcement. Let's be clear on that. There's a role for law enforcement, for police in our society. I want to reduce the footprint but there's a role. What, what's, what's your um, vision for that in the short yeah. term? Well, and I will say this, right. Um, even though there's not 100% alignment because of how long this work takes there. And because there's such overwhelming alignment on the strategy, 
we're going to rock to the ends of the world to, to get some of these things done together. Right. Because that is what it's going to take. Um, around gun violence specifically, we know what works and we know where the trappings are. We know where we have been cut at the knees a little bit. And Jumani spoke about this really, really well recently. He traveled around talking to different folks in different places about how they're approaching gun violence and really succinctly hit the nail on the head when he said the issue that we're having here is that we don't like 1000% buy into the strategy, right? Um, And I have studied cure violence programs and violence and, um, you know, different policy around it, not just here, but across the country. Uh, And you'll see the same pattern of things. We know, right, that violence interruption models, things like cure violence. I mean, here we have um, 696 build. I think they just had a a name change and I I forget what it is. And we have Life Camp and some other folks that do this work. But, you know, they reduce gun violence by, you know, anywhere from between 30 and 70 percent. If it, if it saves lives, it's worth doing. What you see around the country is that in smaller catchment areas where they are, are fully resourced, it even goes beyond those numbers. You're talking about over 75, 80 percent. There was a period of time in Boston for over 24 months. They called it the Boston miracle. They had gotten it down so much. Um you look at uh, ceasefire in Chicago. And then you also see that when they cut funding in all of those different areas, the violence shot up pretty immediately. But the point of this story is that there comes a point when they make the case in their catchment area that you cannot deny these results. It's, it's so much more effective than policing ever was, ever could be at interrupting and preventing the gun violence. And they'll ask for more money because they wanna expand their catchment area they consistently will never get the proper amount of money. So they'll be asked to, as an example, double their size with not the right amount of resources. And now you're diluting the results. Now, instead of getting the 70% reductions, you're getting 25, 30% reductions, which is still good because again, saving lives, but that leaves room for the counter while they can't do it alone. And you got to bring in the the police to help when in reality, you just got to give them all the things that they asked for. Uh, And, you know, that is what I like to remind people of and really push for. And it also takes a sense of discipline. It's also a little bit of taking advantage of the commitment to, to this work, because you know how hard it is to tell for, for a a group to say, we're actually not going to cover those five, 10, 15 extra blocks because you didn't give enough money to do it when they're the ones with the relate. But the reason why they're effective is because they're the ones with the relationships with these people on the ground and they deeply care. And so they try to do it anyway. Um, And it's, it's a little bit of a catch 22. When people see violence in their communities, especially gun violence and people want the police to come with their guns and, uh, keep them safe. That's the, that's the argument we hear. That's what we hear from um, everyone from Eric Adams uh, to, to many others. Is, is that in, in your mind in um, the, the lack of having seen this full vision that you're talking about, the lack of the full, you know, how do you relate to people who say, listen, there's gangs in our community. We hear gunshots. We don't, feel safe going outside. I can't think about a 10 year plan right now. Yeah, I I was, I was actually having this conversation on, I did a public safety 
um, panel with uh, overlapping local elected officials and the 114 precinct. And um, that that exact thing came up. And, you know, what I talked about was, first of all, to affirm that it is very real. It doesn't matter that we're at historic lows. It doesn't matter that, you know, this time last year, the numbers were higher. One death is, is too many and the goal is zero. Right. Um, but we also have to focus on what works and what doesn't work. And so we can act very immediately and throw more police at an issue. But really all it does is give sort of like a false semblance of safety. It's not improving safety. An example that I'm sure you've heard before was the, you know, Times Square is the most heavily policed place in the country and it doesn't prevent shootings. Police don't prevent shootings. They react and respond to them. And then if you look at the statistics even provided within the NYPD themselves, their clearance rates are abysmal, right? Like according to the NYPD themselves, 70% of shootings go unsolved. And then we know that actually in all likelihood, the number is probably higher because these incidents go underreported for, you know, a lot of different reasons. And so while it's so understandable, but that the knee jerk reaction is, yes, I understand. And this was the conversation we had people saying, I fully agree with you. You're right. Like jobs, um, all these different supports, opportunities, uh, they're going to make us safer long term. It's going to help the violence to stop. But what do we do right now? And, you know, the answer that I'd say to that is doubling down on policing brings more violence into our communities. We've seen how sideways that goes. Also, what happens, too, again, is that you see the continuation of the criminalization of just like black and brown existence. Right. All you're going to see this uptick in arrests for all of these different low level offenses instead. Um, but also, if you want immediate um, you know, if you want immediate results, look no further than cure violence. That actually is a, a pretty immediate, like a pretty fast result. When we talk about the infrastructure that we need and housing and all of these different things, yes, those are longer term infrastructure um, projects, but the, the cure violence models are like a no brainer and they are a pretty immediate investment. All right, there's a lot more to talk about there, but I feel like that could we could go an hour or so just on that. Maybe maybe we'll come back to more on on policing. But I but now now that you're running for a legislative you know seat and and looking at the full council, and I know this is obviously going to be a major focus for you. Uh, what we we're just talking about in terms of criminal justice and policing reform, but let's let's zoom out even even further. Um, you mentioned public safety, criminal justice, and climate. When you think about going into the city council, are there other uh, issues that you want to focus on? Are there committees that you want to be on? Yeah, I mean, the very clear anchor to everything that I I want to hopefully accomplish um, in partnership with my colleagues is rooted in, you know, racial and economic equity, um, equity for groups that have been historically marginalized, right? Um, groups that are exposed to systems that don't serve them, that don't work for them, um, and that destabilize their lives as, as a, a result. And so some of the things that I, I really want, you know, to focus on are the things that um, do that. So public health infrastructure is just like really huge uh, access to comprehensive 
uh, healthcare and culturally culturally competent healthcare um, for Black and Brown folks, for our immigrant neighbors, for queer and, and gender nonconforming and trans folks, um, and then it, you know just building out what it would take to, to build out a, a care economy. And so that's really leaning into worker protections, right? Like fighting alongside labor um, to expand unioniza- unionization and, and provide protections for all workers. And I am, forgive me, because I'm a, 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 not a little bit, but a, a lot of a bit, uh, a book nerd, but um, there is a short story written by N.K. Jemison. Um And she gives like one of the most perfect definitions of a care economy. And she says, um, it's not, it's not the job of government to, you know, generate our power, create, you know, produce infrastructure, all of these different, et cetera, et cetera. It is the job of our government to care for the people who do those things. Right. And so like having a government that is really, really centered on providing workers with whatever it is that they need to be able to be safe, healthy, um, do meaningful work at a, a living wage that that keeps our city moving. And I think we have a really um, unique opportunity to do that in this moment because there has been such a necessary paradigm shift around work and the value of work throughout this pandemic. And so thinking about, you know, how how amazing it would be to go further than the last council, which made some great strides in just cause protections and like be fighting really hard for universal just cause, right? Like things, you know, things like that, um, making sure that our excluded workers are no longer excluded, whether they are gig workers um, or anyone or anyone else. So, you know, I see some of the really, really big buckets as being environmental because it is just the most immediate existential crisis that we're facing. So much about the the criminal uh, justice reform platform, it's actually rooted in public health and public safety. And so I'd, I really would say it's more of, of you know, a, a, a public health um, agenda uh, and, and then just like really deeply supporting our, you know, our, the workers in the city. Mm-hmm. How do you think about your individual role in the city council? Um, if, if again, you know, this is all, all all presuming you're you're able to win in the in in the general election, which which seems very very likely. Obviously, um, the you, you're one of the first names that comes up, as I'm sure you know, in conversations where people are are talking about someone who you know could really shake things up, could be a bit of a wild card, could. Uh, try to really push the conversation in, in the directions that you're talking about right now. Um, how are you thinking about a role in a 51 seat legislative yeah. body? Yeah. Well, one, there's a part of it that um, I won't be able to predict because it really depends on how relationships are built and what the overall dynamics within the council are. And we're not really going to know that until we're all there. Like, yes, Mm -hmm. we are all talking to each other. We're trying to figure out who our people are. Right. Um, uh, But a lot of that is an unknown and I don't go into anything making some sort of like concrete assessment about like, this is how I'm going to move. Um, Mm -hmm. And I think people expect me to be this like bomb thrower, uh, but I really try to be very intentionally, not just principled, which I think overwhelmingly people understand that and, and get that from me, but also strategic. My goal is not to go in and just disrupt and agitate without being able to get anything done, because then why, why, why am I there? Right. Um, and it's certainly not necessarily the tact I took in 
in any of my endeavors. You look at the DA race uh, and we built a broad coalition that included formerly incarcerated folks, you know, undocumented immigrants, uh, sex workers um, and middle class white moms to talk about some of these, you know, really leftist issues and brought them all on board. And something I'm really, really proud of is my ability um, to find common ground with folks and communicate and create a space um, where like some really good uh, like growth can happen. And I'm also, I'm somebody who like, please do bring me along as well. If you can teach me something, if there's something that I can evolve on and learn from, I am eager um, to, to, to come at it, right? And, and really grow in that way. I think being a public defender prepared me for, and I couldn't have guessed it at the time, but prepared me for politics, like probably no other profession could. Um, as a public defender, every minute, almost every minute was adversarial, right? And, you know, I could, I could walk into a courtroom and on any given day and step into the well a dozen times. And out of those dozen times, I probably got up there and yelled zero, right? Like, Every once in a while, you make a really big hard in like you really go Mm -hmm. for an issue, but people take notice when you do and they take notice one because you don't do it all the time. And two, because of some of the other things that you have done with taking care of and managing your relationships, we may not have agreed on much of anything on one side of the aisle between like me being the defense attorney and there being a prosecutor or even the, the, the person on the bench, but you trusted me, you respected me. You knew I was going to communicate with you. There was always room for a conversation because of those things. And so if I had to go off and do something else, you at least came at a place where like, this is not personal and you respect me for it. Right. And then we can come back together on the next thing. So maybe I should ask this first, but obviously any conversation about your role in the council uh, has to include at least the question of, are, are you trying to become the speaker of the city council? No. No. Okay. <laughs> I, I mean, also I, The way that I think about it, too, is even putting a name or a face to a potential speaker, it feels way too premature for that. I view this as an organizing project and, you know, the focus should be on building relationships, figuring out because we're all learning, right, what the levers are, what can be leveraged, what can't be leveraged, uh, whether it's, you know, the rules, committees, just different kinds of, um, you know, agendas uh, and saying that there is a broad enough swath of us that has enough of an agenda that we agree on to be able to leverage it in this race and see where people can meet us. Like, let's make it so that we're creating an environment where folks have to at least ask the question, um, you know, do we have to put their agenda on the floor to be able to get enough votes? Right. Um and that's where I'm at. I think that's I think the the who is like two or three steps down from from where we are right now. That's interesting. But the who is not you. The who is not me. OK. But to that point, you said in your statement about the recently passed city council uh, city budget that the next city council will be the most progressive in New York City history. That's probably very hard for us to, to pick apart and define, but it will be clearly a very progressive city council you're talking about trying to organize 
basically whatever size block of council members you can to make sure that the city council speaker is of that progressive as left possible block uh, as you can. Is that a fair way to put the, the yeah, as you much just as, made? you know, as much as possible. Um, and, you know, I think that being able to, to do that, even if, you know, we don't, all get exactly what we want. The fact that we demonstrated that we can and will organize and can be an effective block together is just as valuable and just as important moving forward and going into to city hall. Um, and then again, like we will find so many places, I think, to to broaden coalitions. I, I think I mentioned this before, but I'll give you a quick example, I was on the Stonewall, you know, Dem Club meeting with some of my, my hopeful future LGBT, you know, caucus um, incoming members. And we don't agree on everything. Um, You know, I have a friendly relationship with Lynn, who is, you know, potentially the incoming member um, out in further in East Queens. And she's been open about the fact that, yes. Yeah. And she's been open about the fact that she doesn't necessarily support defunding the police. Right. Which is something that I obviously do support, but I know that Lynn really, really cares about health and hospitals and access to mental health care and that it should be healthcare workers that do that work. That's the place to, to broaden and work together on, right? Like, like I had talked about before. And so I just think that, um, you know, there are, there's so many overlapping priorities that it, I'm really, really hopeful about how broad of a, a coalition we can build. And is that a coalition you are actively or trying to organize? I, I think we're all just trying to get to know one another and uh, build some relationships and trust and, mm-hmm. and you know, sort of organically and, and naturally um, trying to figure out what our strategies are, are going to well, look like. And, and the fact that the primary was in June, I, get, I suppose, leaves a little extra time for some, some of that if, if everybody can be fairly for those fairly certain of their of their general election, uh, general elections. Carlina and Rivera. Yeah, 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 yeah. No, that that's a big, big shift. Um Carlina Rivera is clearly running for city council speaker. She endorsed you. Is she not sort of the front runner for you and for folks on the left looking at a next speaker? I mean, like I said, my focus has been just so really squarely and, and intentionally uh, on, you know, how do we organize to um, create an environment where whoever wants to be the speaker has to embrace some and hopefully a substantial portion of, you know, what our uh, progressive and hopefully like leftist um, priorities are. So I just am keeping a very, very open mind right now. Mm -hmm. And um, how are you thinking about uh, assuming Eric Adams is the next mayor? How are you thinking about the council mayor relationship? Uh, Clearly you want the council to be sort of as as progressively led as leftist led as possible, as you just said. Um, how do how are you thinking about a potential mayor, Eric Adams, and the and the interaction with the the city council? Yeah, I mean, I, certainly we don't want a city council that's a rubber stamp for the 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 mayor's agenda, right? We want a council that is going to be able to effectively move on overlapping. Um, you know, priorities, things that we agree on that should happen and not afraid to push back when we don't. 
Um, and I, I don't think that it's going to be a situation where folks are going to be walking in uh, like just entirely adversarial for the sake of being adversarial on, on day one. There are things that Eric Adams has made it clear, for example, that he his goal, right, is to make sure that we are we have an, an equitable recovery from the pandemic. There's no doubt about the fact that Eric Adams cares about, you know, um, black and brown and low income New Yorkers. We may disagree on on strategies on how to better care for our neighbors, right, for our constituents. Um, but I think it's pretty clear that the desire is there. Uh, and then there are things that we agree on strategy wise that like I'd be very happy to f- to find ways to work with, um, you know, an Eric Adams administration on expanding the crisis management system and our cure violence systems and all of those different things. And then I want a city council that's going to fight like hell to make sure the anti-crime unit doesn't come back. And, you know, we're not allowing um, stop and frisk to increase because it's not gone, but that we're not, a, you know, a, we're not uh, allowing an environment where it's just able to run even more rampant. Mm-hmm. Right? You come in with a new city council class in January, let's say you've got six months to negotiate the next city budget. What's your hope that would be put on the table in terms of reducing NYPD funding in that first budget? Yeah. Um, so, well, I'll get a like maybe a three week head start because we currently don't have we have a vacant seat here. We currently oh, right, don't right, have right, a council right. member. Um, you know, we had it, uh, Costa Constantinides is the, the former council member, and he it, it did an incredible job here, um, but has had a like just a very difficult year mm. um, personally. Lost and, his wife, um, yeah, yeah, mm-hmm. um, but, yeah. Uh, but now he is the ex- he's the executive director of the Boys and Girls Club, so still rooted here in, in Western Queens, and excited about the work that he's going to do there. But because of that vacancy, um, the person who wins the general takes office as soon as the results are certified. So like presumably in the beginning of December or something okay. like that. But in terms of organizing for a budget, that's got to happen now. And so I think some of the conversations um, that we're starting to have that, you know, need to, to, to be taking place with the groups and organizations that are really committed and invested invested in you know defunding uh the police to further invest in our communities that's got to stop that's got to happen now because if it's starting in january in my mind it's too late um it's way too late and you saw this past budget cycle people were distracted their energies were elsewhere i don't believe that the reason why we didn't have a you know a million people out in the streets or calling about uh, defunding the police and the budget was because they don't care about it anymore. Mm-hmm. I know better than that because I was knocking doors, right? My co- my incoming colleagues know better than that because they were knocking doors. They were talking to people, but I think it had more to do with the fact that in uh, you know continuing to be in the midst of a pandemic and being really overwhelmed by this election cycle. I don't know. Could anybody is- escape the the the, the stress um, and just like how much time and energy? The mayoral race took up, right? The Manhattan DA's race, all the city council races. In some districts, you had people trying to decide between 20 candidates. Hmm. Um, And these organizations that are really responsible for putting the pressure on City Hall 
we're out trying to get people elected rather than doing, you know, the, and that's a capacity issue. It's an understandable capacity issue. So I think for me to, if, if it starts in January, it's way too late. Um, then it's got to really start now. Any number you want to put on the goal? Um, you know, I hesitate to put a number. It needs to be significant. Like uh, I have consistently said that anywhere upwards of, you know, two or $3 billion is a great place to, to start. Um, and one of the things that doesn't get talked about enough is that when you reinvest those dollars and put them into public health infrastructure, you actually have much more money to play with because of the downstream savings from um, the, the better health outcomes, right? Mm-hmm. Um, so, but also from a strategic perspective, I don't think that we should be harping on the numbers so much because what we really should be making sure that we push for, especially because we're in a place where we're getting a surplus of resources from the federal and state government, right? We're much differently situated than we were last year. It was a, it was a different conversation last budget where it was clear that we were experiencing cuts in a lot of these areas. Um, and the argument was, we have to take it from the police. Well, the argument is different now. We have to, we have to, and it was always true, but we have to cut this budget because it does not forward getting us to a place where we have the best public health and public safety outcomes, period. We have to stop funding the things that don't work and really leaning into the things that that do work. Um, it's why I put out a public safety plan. It's a 40-page plan on my website. I was, I was reading it before this, and I, <laughs> I, re, I really I do encourage people to look it over. But as you said, I mean, we can't come close to touching on all elements of it. But as you said, there, you know, the discussion often gets simplified, and it, it you know, anybody who has yeah. any time to at least look it over really, really should. That's not me saying I agree with it. I'm just saying the discussions are always more nuanced and they wind up, you know, coming out in, in certain, you know, in headlines and and quick discussions in a campaign, but sorry. When you look, if you look at those 40 pages, I actually don't mention policing very much in there. It's an infrastructure plan on, on the things that are needed and necessary to get the best public health and public safety outcomes. And so when it comes to the budget fight, we can and should be focusing on making sure that we start getting those infrastructure pieces. And then, yes, also coupling it with we then don't need the police to do these jobs that we have been tasking them to do that they have no business doing. This is Ben Max talking with Tiffany Caban. I want to get to a couple more quick things. I want to be mindful of your time, of course, uh, and I appreciate you taking the time here to to chat about a bunch of of topics. Um, Going back to sort of the dynamics in the city council, I wanted to ask you about this concept of member deference and how you're thinking about member deference, which very often comes down to does the full city council sort of go along with the local member about land use matters, which often uh, become a hot topic around rezonings, upzonings, development uh, that is sometimes commercial, sometimes housing, sometimes mixed. Um, how are you thinking about member deference and uh, the sort of bigger picture of development in, in New York City? I mean, I believe in community deference, right? And um, the thing that member deference doesn't account for, and, and in large part, the reason why I don't agree with it is because our city is so interconnected and land use decisions, for example, in one part of our city have really significant 
widespread repercussions across um, across the city, right? Uh, and you know, you will have areas where, I mean, you'll have like nimbyism versus like the yes in my backyard versus like all of these different competing interests um, where at the end of the day, I want to be in a situation where I am fighting with other members to make sure that we get the outcome that provides um, the most equity uh, in, in outcomes that is centering you know, black and brown and immigrant and low income um, and poor New Yorkers. And that might not be the thing that a a member sitting in a certain district uh, is motivated to vote for, for any number of of different reasons. And so I, I think it's been a good thing to see people from all over the city go and you know, get into these these fights together, whether it's, you know, the out in Sunset Park or going to, over to like the Flushing region. You saw people from all over the city getting involved in these fights. Um, and I think that that's appropriate. Now, now there's some people who's, who don't like member deference because they want the council to overrule the local member who is against a development project because the development they believe would be better for the city. It would create jobs. It would create more housing, you know, that the city desperately needs. And then there's people who want to override member deference because they want to be able to squash uh, development projects. They think the council member is too close to real estate or whatever it might be. That latter group is, is more aligned with what you're thinking. You know, one of the concerns that I hear from people is that People on the left, they just want to say no to every every development project. The city desperately needs more housing, including affordable housing, but also including market rate housing, especially in wealthier communities. And people just want to stop all all growth. Yeah, I mean, I think that that's a common misconception. I can very clearly and unequivocally say that I am not anti-development in the sense that I know that um, in the midst of a, a housing crisis that continues to get worse, if we are going to house the unhoused, we have to develop new housing. The problem is, is that we're not developing in a manner that's actually catching the population of folks that are experiencing um, housing instability or, or homelessness, right? And so it's not about just building housing. And we we have had all of these arguments about a lot of what we're building is not actually affordable, dis- despite being, you know, defined that way. And really the need is for not just affordable, but deeply ultra affordable housing um, to house the, the, the chronically unhoused. Right. Um, so, you know, I think the focus is developing where the need is and also saying that we can't pit people against each other. We, we have these discussions about how, well, you can choose either union built housing or affordable housing. That's nonsense, right? Or um, it's it's homeowners versus tenants. The reality is, is that homeowners and tenants are struggling with a lot of the same issues. Right here in my district, um, you know, apartments to rent or places to rent are like really expensive. 
And at the same time, it's really difficult for families to buy homes here and build a little bit of generational wealth, have something to pass down to their kids, stay in the neighborhood, because two thirds of the private housing stock is being bought up at private equity firms or a real estate. And, and then they're gutting them. They're turning in, them into more apartments that more people can't afford. And so small homeowners and tenants are, are both suffering. And like, what is, you know, what is the solution to that? Well, again, it's really responsible development around truly deeply affordable uh, housing and then also continuing to create pathways to home ownership in places. Are you open to common development that is a combination? Are you, you know, do you do you at all see yourself approving, you know, or getting behind projects that are a mix of market rate and deeply affordable housing? Or is that you know, not, I, a, not on the Caban agenda? I, I, I am admittedly. I know what I know and I don't, and I know what I don't know. And so I admittedly am still learning so much more about the how, you know, housing here in the city, land use processes, the EULA process, all those different things. I'm still learning and I'm leaning a lot on my partners to help me learn. Um, I will say this, that I am, my, my approach has always been to talk to everybody who has a stake in, in something happening or not happening, being as informed as I possibly can. I am firmly rooted in the idea that we did, we don't have to and shouldn't have to choose between, you know, union labor um, and deeply affordable housing, uh, that there is no reason why we can't have uh, housing that is, you know, 100% affordable while understanding that that is a much difficult process on private land, right? Like on public, you know, on publicly owned land, yes. 100% affordable, right? Uh, and then on privately owned land, we have to have that fight with with developers. And then some of it has to do with how we engage in the process from the very beginning when we talk about um, when it gets to our community boards, when we're dealing with things at the very early stages. Uh, so, you know, I can't give you any concrete answers, but mm -hmm. what I do know is that, like, I want to make sure that we are developing, uh, you know, union, um, union labor, um, deeply, deeply ultra affordable housing. Let me ask you one final thing um, or one final topic in a second on the on the jail plan, but just on development. Have you at all looked at uh, this kind of big vision for Sunnyside Yard? Is that something that's on your your radar at all? I'm still starting to learn about it. You know, like I said, I've been really honest with people about sort of where are the areas that I have, I have a really, really good base of knowledge um, and where are the areas that I'm still learning. So I kind of keep a little bit close to the chest while I am trying to like responsibly learn um, and, and be a little careful before I start making statements anywhere. Got it. Uh, I think, I think plenty of people will, will, will appreciate that, but also be look, looking, looking for your, your, your takes on those matters, uh, in the near future. Uh, and I am I talked, doing my homework. That is, yeah. that is for sure. When I spoke with Donovan Richards, the Queensborough president recently, he said it's a big, big priority for him to get to some, some big vision on Sunnyside Yard. So I'll be interested to hear more from you on that down the line. Um, lastly, and, and thank you for the time again, the, the jail plan. Um, you've made very clear your vision, no new jails. Where are you at now? You're, you're looking at joining the city council, as you said, potentially uh, even earlier than January, given it's a vacant seat currently. But looking at entering the city council, looking at the fact that this jail plan is somewhat down the line, 
what do you what would you be trying to do in the council or in your organizing even leading up to taking your seat potentially about how that's moving ahead no new jails um that is firmly where i stand i think that every penny we put into our our prison industrial complex um, is one that absolutely should be spent on providing care and supports in our community. And again, that they produce better outcomes. We have spent a lot of time debunking a lot of the myths around who's on Rikers Island and who isn't. We know that the majority of people on Rikers Island are people who are um, there because they can't afford their bail. uh, And you know, uh, if they had enough money, they'd be able to fight their case from from the outside. They're presumed innocent. We know that the other portion of the population on Rikers Island are people who are serving short jail sentences, meaning for misdemeanors, right? Less than one year stints. Often, sometimes they're, they're a few weeks, a few months, and they're for offenses that are really public health issues. They are rooted and grounded in the criminalization of poverty, mental health, substance use, and that money is better spent providing non-carceral, non-criminal responses to these issues. Uh, And then the other portion of people on Rikers Island are people that are there for technical violations, not because they um, committed some crime that you will find in our penal code, but because they technically violated some condition of a post-release supervision. Maybe they lost their job. Maybe they missed curfew. Maybe they had a, a dirty urine because, you know, they, they smoked some weed. Um, but those are all situations where we, we don't, we can't and shouldn't be caging folks. Uh, and then understanding the difference between jails and prisons. And I make these distinctions just to not because I agree that certain folks should be incarcerated and certain others, but that, but that they directly are responses to some of the concerns that most often come up or the pushback that people say, where are the violent, you know, quote unquote, um, criminals going to go? Well, if you are convicted, if you are found guilty of a violent felony, you're not on Rikers Island, you're in upstate prison. Right. Uh, Rikers Island is not the only jail in our city. We have multiple jail facilities from the barge to the tombs to, you know, Brooklyn House. Um, and so it's not getting rid of all of our our systems. And then the, the the simple sort of catchy but true saying is that when you build jail cells, you fill them. Uh, and the more that we allow this system to catch all of our societal problems and ills, the less reason or room there is to to create real long lasting solutions to to those problems and ills. I've mentioned this earlier, but it does nothing to change behavior. It does nothing to provide a space for accountability. It provides isolation. It provides um, incapacitation. And it actually puts you in the environment with all of the elements, shame, um, inability to take care of and provide for oneself, uh, not having access to an emotional support system. All of those things are drivers of harm and violence. So you are just really upping the ante and creating the conditions for the probability of more harm. Um, so for me, it's like what works and what doesn't, we got to do this stuff differently. All right. I'm going to, we're going to leave it there before you tell me, uh, Enough already, because I've kept you longer than I said I was going to. So I appreciate the time. (laughs) Tiffany Caban is the Democratic nominee in City Council District 22 in Queens. 
and we will catch up with you more down the line. Thanks. Appreciate you.